Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss Fernando Alonso's legacy and ask how much Formula One will miss him. Fernando Alonso will be absent from the Formula 1 grid in 2019, and although the door has been left open for a possible return in the future, he could well be gone for good. So how big a loss to F1 is Alonso? And if his 311 starts, 32 wins and two world championships, really is it for him? What's his legacy? I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me for a discussion about all things Alonso, first is Ben Anderson. Now, you're something of an Alonso expert, having written one of the finest in-depth features that's ever run an autosport magazine, I'd say, the real Alonso. So clearly he's a fascinating character in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Very kind of you to say that about my feature. Um, it's, it was probably the most enjoyable piece I've ever had the pleasure of putting together, spending a long time um, setting up and conducting interviews with people who work closely with Alonso, including Alonso himself, um, yeah, just trying to understand what really motivates one of the well, the best drivers we've seen in Formula One, certainly in the the modern era. Um, these these people are always slightly standing apart um, from public scrutiny, and lots of myth and superstition and misconception um, 
surrounds them. So it was, uh, yeah, a very enjoyable task to try and pierce through that and try and get to understand uh, where reality ends and fiction begins. Yeah, there's a lot of myth surrounding him. It's good to try and cut through some of that. Now, also joining me to help uh, help in that process is Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. Now, Alonso will still be a big story in the motorsport world in 2019. He's doing the Indianapolis 500. He'll finish off the, the WEC Super Season with, with Toyota, so he'll be back at Le Mans in, in June. But it does mean that a big F1 story has, has been lost, and he's one of the few megastar names that, that you can reliably put on the, the cover of the magazine. He is, and it's remarkable, isn't it, that it's, we're more than five years since his last F1 win, and you can still wow. say that about him. Um, I mean, well, just an example, I think, on, on allsort.com, Le Mans coverage in 2018, where there wasn't really a race because it was Katoya to beat themselves or not. And the, num- the numbers <laughs> were amazing just because Alonso was there. You know, I could put the Indy 500 on the cover in 2017 because Alonso was there. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's got it, incredible that he's still got that pulling power so long after what you would consider to be his pomp in Formula One. And we should say that that pull is real. It's not us imposing it. You see that in website stories, etc. You know, there's constant fascination with Alonso. He's a genuine superstar driver and endlessly uh, endlessly interesting to, to the fans. Well, let, let's get into it. Ben, Fernando Alonso has kind of been Formula One's critic-in-chief in the past 12 months. Is it entirely the fault of F1 that it's lost one of its biggest stars? Or is there a little bit more to the story than that? I don't, I don't think you can really say that it's Formula One's fault. Um, like Formula One just is what it is. If, if anyone's to blame, it, it's it has to be shared between Alonso himself. I mean, he chose to walk away from Formula One. I'm fairly certain McLaren would have kept him on if he'd wanted to stay. Oh, 100%. So uh, it was his choice to leave Formula One. Formula One didn't reject him outright. Um if you if you're trying to find an entity to blame for his decision to walk away from Formula One, really probably that blame has to fall with McLaren Honda because he staked a lot on that project, restoring McLaren to former glories and challenging Mercedes for world domination. It just didn't come together, and it's all been downhill since that project unravelled. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's it's a loss for F1, but it isn't F1's fault. You can't correct you know, what, what, who and what do we mean by F1? You know, that's a bit strange to say. I mean, you, way, you, the, but, the usual things you know, that people say is that oh, he's a great driver, therefore he should be in a great car. If there were more great competitive cars, then he'd be able to fight for wins and he'd stay on. You could also argue, and I've made this argument that one of the key reasons was that. Alonso had lost hope of a team like McLaren getting to the front within a realistic time frame. And he was quite right to because teams, and I compared it to when he first came into Formula 1 in 2001 with Minardi. You look at where the, the, the Benetton, well, bought by Renault at that stage, was. And a few years later, he's winning championship, championships for it. Well, you can't do that now. Maybe with a big disruptive rule change like we'll have in 2021, you can make a jump. But it takes a long time for, to get a team to the front. So he couldn't stay with McLaren for 19 and realistically expect anything better than with absolute perfect run McLaren will be no better than the front of the midfield and most likely behind that yeah he gave he gave them another he gave them enough time didn't he you know 2021 is two seasons away the McLaren Honda thing was all promise and no delivery and he had three seasons of that torment and then still stuck around to see oh is the Renault engine a basis around which we can actually get up to the front again, one season in, no, that's not happening. You can't really blame Renault. McLaren had their own problems, but it's just the same old story with a different engine for him, isn't it? So he's thinking, well, we're no further forward. It's been by now four seasons. So even if there's another rule change opportunity, we didn't take advantage of the last two, if you count the 
engine changes that McLaren tried to get on board with the Honda and then the 2017 aerodynamic rule changes that were vast. And the ones before that in 09 aero changes they fell foul of as well. Yeah, so you know he's, he's, he's probably looking at the bigger picture there and going, well, the, the signs don't look very positive for the future, so maybe it's time to just finally pack it in, albeit maybe temporarily. I think I think that's very fair. The point about the way the rules are now, and there aren't enough competitive teams. You know, it's not like you can get a DFV and a Hewlin gearbox and go with Formula One racing and hope to be competitive. But there are three teams, therefore six seats with winning cars. And for one reason or another, Alonso can't get into any of them. Now, I'm a big fan of his, but there is a reason for that because, it, and it's not nothing to do with what he does on track. I think we all accept that he's been one of the top two or three best drivers of the last decade and a half. So. I think Alonso has played his part in him now having no options other than, oh, I'm going to go and win Le Mans and the Indy 500 and whatever else he decides to do. No, that's certainly the case. Christian Horner talked about it, that they weren't keen on Alonso because they felt that he was a bit of a disruptive influence. And there's again, this is where a lot of the myth comes in, and we'll get onto this in a bit more detail later. And while some of that is is massively overblown, there are certain aspects of Alonso's character. He kind of needs to be your focal point in a team. That kind of comes with a, with a territory, as we've seen in in the past. You could argue that uh, McLaren, him and he and him and Button ran well together, but they weren't fighting at the front. So it's easy to be matey with your other world champion teammate in that yeah. in that uh, scenario. So, well, interesting. That, to be a bit careful. Interesting that you know talking about those three teams and six seats. You now, two of those teams he hasn't worked with before. Horner has no direct relationship with Alonso from Formula One point of view. Neither does Toto Wolff, but both of them at different points have made publicly that reference to, oh, we're not sure about Alonso's character. Is he the kind of guy we want to have in our team? So they must have got that through second-hand information because well, they haven't they, had him in their team. They, and they wouldn't he, have wanted him to, they wouldn't, Mercedes wouldn't want to put him alongside Hamilton and Rebel wouldn't want to put him alongside Verstappen. No. If they didn't have those two, it might be a different story, of course. Yeah, yeah. And of course he had the Ferrari seat. Um, but you know that that project unravelled again because of frustrated ambition. You know he he, he drove, probably drove like a hero, didn't he? And certainly two of those seasons at Ferrari and came so close to winning the championship. And I guess eventually he just kind of thought, well, this is this is not going to happen. They had that downward slide massively in fourteen, and then you know, they massively underestimated the challenge of the hybrid engines and yes. didn't get onto it. Anywhere near early enough. Same as Renault with Red Bull. You know, they made that point, didn't they? The reason they struggled so much early on is that Renault underestimated how much of a jump that was and didn't didn't plan far enough ahead. And of course, Alonso separated from Ferrari and just before they came good again. <laughs> I suspect both parties would quite like to have been together in 2018. Yep, that certainly would have changed uh, the situation. It's hard to see Alonso make as many mistakes as, as Vettel did. Although we should add... Alonso wasn't foolproof. No driver is. You know, look at 2010 when he almost won the championship. There were mistakes in that season. Crashed out at Spa, made a mistake lapping in Canada and, and lost a position. Crashed during FP3 at Monaco. So, you know, no driver is uh, no driver is infallible. They, they all they all make errors, but perhaps not to the level uh, Vettel did in the in the second half of 18. But it but it is this is the, the centre of the debate about Alonso, isn't it, Ben? It's at what point does the fact turn into the fiction about what he's like to work with. It's unquestionable that he can be disruptive to an extent, but it's what that disruption actually means and what causes it and how you go about getting the best out of him, how you go about making sure it doesn't go all McLaren. I mean, it all really started with McLaren, didn't it, in 2007? That's when that that preposterous season, really, with everything that was going on there, when that's when that reputation was really 
created, should we say. Mm. And it's not all him, is it? You know, that, that, was, that was a situation that also encompassed Ron Dennis and the FIA and Max Mosley. And the interesting thing, talking to people who work with Alonso closely, is that really it all comes down to this this need. Eric Boulay described it as like a person needing oxygen to breathe. Alonso needs to win. And he said himself, even even mundane, pointless activities like football with his mates, he wants to win so badly. If he doesn't, he, he almost throws his, he admits he throws his toys out the pram. He wants to change the teams up. He wants to redefine everything so he can win the next time. So in the Formula One environment, he'll go into every project thinking, right, we are going to win. Nothing else will do. How do we get there? And if any part of that project falls away or doesn't deliver you instantly get into problems and then it becomes a deconstruction of okay who's not pulling their weight who's not telling the truth or who's trying to hide behind something that they did wrong if everyone's honest about where the failings are and can present a clear map to get out of that trouble he'll he'll buy into it and obviously mclaren had to do that quite a few times in the the second stint because the honda project was going so badly wrong if you don't do that then he'll he'll call you out on it and start demanding that things change and of course that's when you can get into tensions with people who are trying to maybe protect themselves or deflect attention away from them and it can get into a whole into a whole mess but there is one precondition to all that that Alonso sees the focal point needs to be him for that to happen and that's really what went wrong with the first time around at McLaren with Lewis Hamilton unexpectedly being so strong in his first season and so I think a lot of what well, Alonso wants things to be done correctly, done the right way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a positive thing for driver. You'll, you'll run into plenty of people in management positions who aren't necessarily focused on the right things. You will run into politics, et cetera. He's good at cutting through that. Yeah, he's super demanding, isn't but he? But yeah. it's this fact that he has to be the, the man that it's focused on. And we did see that a bit with Renault a few times when he'd lash out at the team. Yeah, well, um, Pat Simmons made a really, really good point on that score. He said, uh, you know, during the, the height of... Alonso's success with that team in 2006, just won his second world championship. He said he he held an extraordinary press conference where he just slagged off the team and everyone was totally taken aback. He said that Alonso lost a lot of friends within that organisation that year. And, and Pat's point, having worked obviously closely with Michael Schumacher, another great driver who did achieve the numbers to match his ability... He said Michael was all about the team. Even when the team was having bad moments or struggling or things weren't quite working, he would always support them openly and behind the scenes. Whereas in Pat's mind, Alonso is all about Team Alonso. The team is only a secondary element that works for his ambitions. Which which actually is fine in terms of if you have a team that's set up that way, that can be really successful. That can really, really work well. Everyone has to buy into it. Exactly. But this this is what... This is... That's the the fact at the heart of the disruption he's not some loose cannon who runs around causing problems no 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 no. that's at the center of it and you can't necessarily blame him you know you want to be the focal point and maybe you can do that maybe you can decide you're that driver when michael schumacher's dominated f1 and you're the new kid on the block and the only guy who can beat him which is what he was in that era before lewis hamilton came on the scene before sebastian vettel and then later you get drivers like max verstappen so he's almost he was at a point where he'd almost cornered the market for exceptional Grand Prix drivers. Then the market got flooded and you get Kibitzas appearing and Jensen Button rising as a championship winning force. And that that's one of the things that's, that's made it harder for him to get into the positions he wants to. Yeah, because, you, you know, Formula One always moves on. It's never static. And there's a there's a point where Alonso, he is the man. He's toppled this 
mighty German driver who's dominated Formula One for so long. And we were all wondering when the Ferrari reign would ever end. He did it with Renault. So, of course, he's going to think, well, you know, I command everything now. I'm, I'm king of the hill. But, of course, it only takes a few bad decisions or a few seasons in the wilderness results-wise. Even if you, and you know and the sport knows that you're a great driver, other people, as Ed outlined, they, they fill the gaps, don't they? They come, they come in uh, with new ways of doing things, new approaches. Maybe they're just as fast, just as relentless, but they're, you know, their personality is slightly different and more supportive of the team or has a different way of doing things. And suddenly the attention turns away from you or is at least refracted five or six times. And, you know, if if, if by uh, actuality or just perception, you have alienated a few of these key decision makers, it just makes your life that much harder. I think there's a key separation between how Alonso's perceived within the nuts and bolts parts of teams, i.e. the mechanics and engineers he works with, who are who are just focused on, how fast you can go on a given weekend, how much performance you can get out of the car. And he is brilliant at that. You know, there's probably no better driver of recent times who's so good at driving around problems, just hustling lap times out of cars. That is what the guys on the ground want to see. But that is different from how you deal with senior management and the bigger picture of a team and where it's going and where your resources are being focused and um, how you decide your strategy for the next two, three, five years. And those people making those decisions will see the driver as, well, your job is to drive the car as fast as possible and make sure we get as most points we can on a race. That's kind of where it ends. If Alonso's minded to try and have more say in these other elements, it causes problems, doesn't it? If he's trying to be team principal as well as driver, that's not going to work. What's your view on this, Kev? I think he has to take a percentage of it, doesn't he? How much of the of what we've talked about is the reality and how much of it is perception? I think it's a very good point Ben made that Christian Horner and Toto Wolf haven't worked with him. So they may have the right perception from what they've heard in the paddock or he might be a bit overblown and exaggerated and actually had he gone to one of those teams, it would have been fine and he'd be on five, six, seven, whatever world championship. So I think there's also a bit of luck involved. You know, I don't think that Lewis Hamilton really thought he was going to suddenly string together this incredible run with Mercedes when he left McLaren. I think, you know, Nicky Lauda did a good sales job on him and he picked to the right moment when McLaren had a quick car that wasn't reliable. I don't think Lewis had some amazing crystal ball that was much better than what Fernando was operating with in the paddock. So I think I think it is that there's a lot of sort of luck and seats coming along at the right time or, or whatever. Well, Lewis would say that picking that timing is actually part of what makes a great driver. I mean, maybe he's being disingenuous, but he says, you know, you've got to try and read. You say that now you've got that to try he's and got read well, we, should, the, we should remember in that that Mercedes had started the work, the single-cylinder test versions of the engines were out years, were being run mm. years before. So they had... Yeah, they caught the, Renault in front so of their there, pants. There was at least evidence there. And also, Mercedes already had a kind of parallel programme that was looking towards the 14 regs and everything that, that was being run in-house. So at least there was evidence that Ross Brawl and Nicolai could say to him, well, we're doing this, 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 and this. And then he could look at what McLaren are doing and think, well, we're not doing any of that. Yeah, but that's kind of what I mean, really, is, is that uh, is the choosing the team, how much of that is the options you're dealt or how much of it is you making the most of what you're dealt, if you see what I mean. You know, I, if Alonso's options have been reduced because of the way that he's acted within other teams, then you've got to say that he's got to take some of that responsibility but in other areas, I think, oh, you know, he's very unfortunate at McLaren, really, that, that scenario. You know, he had a situation where he was up against the best rookie in F1 history who had some, had more, in a way, roots with the team than he did, even though he was sort of 
he assumed he was number well, one. Well, talk about luck. None so, of that would have happened in 07 if the tyres yeah. hadn't changed, if Michelin hadn't gone. Because probably because Hamilton wasn't quite as on top of the Michelin tyres, struggling a bit more in testing them when it changed. Yeah. So then yeah, you've yeah. got a situation where, let's say, Lewis takes a bit longer to get up to speed or isn't quite as good or whatever. Now he wouldn't be good, that good because he wouldn't have had enough testing mileage to be that good, even if he was amazing. So Alonso probably far enough here in the championship, even if Lewis comes at him in the second half of the year and go, yeah, next year, mate. So immediately Alonso is a three-time world champion and probably wants to hang around. So Then the hungry pit lane it, thing never happens. That never does, happens. Does the spy scandal thing ever happen? Who knows? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So I just think, I don't think it's just, it's not just Alonso's fault. But then, but then in saying that, uh, he still walked away from... The McLaren deal. It wasn't one year, was it? It was meant to be a long relationship. So that, that so, was a big mistake. He assumed he would always be able to get himself into a good car, even if he took a step back for a bit into into runner. He felt he'd be back in winning cars and there'd be more championships, exactly, no problem. Exactly. So he, so he gives up, you know, a McLaren at its best. So there goes. Well, 07, Obviously, they defeated each other and allowed Kimi in through the back door. 08, Hamilton does win the championship. That could conceivably have been Alonso in a different universe then he wastes another year in 09 at Renault okay McLaren were no good then so at that point maybe you go okay Alonso at McLaren doesn't defend his title and looks elsewhere he gets into Ferrari you wouldn't begrudge him going there that move seems to make sense okay Red Bull are rising but there's a whole different way of doing things isn't it and of course he could have gone there at one point I mean there was a big discussion in the summer about whether Alonso had an offer to go back there for 2019 um, sorry, go there for 2019 or not. But they said, well, earlier, 07, 08 time, we did offer Alonso a drive and he didn't want it because the team was still growing up and he thought it was too much of a risk. But of course, Ferrari comes closer in the championship. And even when that finally did unravel, he could have stayed there. He was in negotiations to stay. There was a chance for him to, to, to that, that keep the, the seat mistake. that he, Vettel he, now has. He didn't. I just think he wasn't convinced after what he'd seen in previous years that they could follow through on what Marcioni was proposing they should, which, which of course they did, unfortunately. Mm. And of course, so he's thinking, well, there's no way I can get into Mercedes. That's now, or looks like it's becoming Lewis's team and Toto doesn't want me. Um, Red Bull was its own thing. And I, my chance to get in there was much earlier and I didn't go. And now they're doing their own thing with young drivers. So if you don't stay where you are, and of course, accepting Ferrari weren't in good shape that season. I mean, Alonso's performances in 14 were tremendous in a really, really bad car. And he absolutely destroyed Kimi Raikkonen as a teammate in that season. And so it's very hard to predict that they're then going to get their act together through 15, a bit of a wobble in 16, 17, 18, be strong. He goes to McLaren because you know the the reasons that that all fell apart are no longer present. And of course, they've got this big promise of you know, what might be with a then unknown but very well-funded Honda engine project. I think, in a way, the leaving Ferrari thing is a much more understandable. You know, how many years was it? Five years he'd had? Come, you know, Come probably so thought, guys, you've had enough opportunities. But, but at the same time, so ask, that- ask some of those who were involved with Ferrari at the time, a lot of the management that left, and the changes that were made that laid the foundation for 15 recovery were being made February, March time. Yeah, so he'd probably so the, heard the, that. The, ev- the evidence was potentially... Yes, was but he'd probably heard that every year from Ferrari 
going, because every team says, yeah, we've sorted out whatever problem it is, we're going to be better. And he probably heard it four or five times and gone. And he heard it from McLaren. Oh, I've had enough of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that we're going, I think the leaving McLaren at the end of 07, I think the point about not realising the driver market. And I think, you know, back in the day when there was obviously just one best driver in the world, you could have maybe a bit more of a sway in the drive market. But it's all too good now. The top yeah. guys are too, cl- okay, so last year, Lewis, you know, was head and shoulders above everyone else. But we think that that's probably a sort of temporary state of affairs when Vettel gets his act together, the clerk gets up to speed, Verstappen stops crashing the first six races of the year, that kind of thing, leaving itself out. The last decade and a half, I think, has had a lot of talent. And Alonso has just... He's just one of many, many, isn't he? Exactly. And if you go, shall I go with this guy who's probably pretty much as good but isn't the high-risk person within the team? Whether that's a perception or reality. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. you you, you, you go for the easier option, don't you? And of course, Lewis made the point last year that you know, in his eyes, Alonso's big mistake was that he thought he controlled the driver market. And maybe at the point he'd thrown Schumacher, that was true briefly. But clearly in the last 10 seasons, it's not been the case. Well, also look at the successful drivers in recent, well, 20, 30 years. It tends to be drivers that say a long time at one team. You know, Vettel at Red Bull for a long time. Lots of wins there. Schumacher, obviously, at Ferrari before that. Lewis himself. One stint at McLaren, that was long. And the stint at Mercedes, obviously, is long as well. And you look at that compared to Alonso, and apart from you know, apart from the five-year stint at Ferrari, it's been kind of bouncing around all over the place. He's almost been trying to chase his tail into a position where to get himself into a car that he thinks you know, will give him what he wants. We should move on a little bit. Um, we'll get on to talking about the, the great strengths on track of Alonso in a minute. But, Kev, do you think we're... Do you think Formula One's being diminished by the fact there's an Alonso-shaped hole on the grid in 2019. <laughs> um, you know, this think, is one of its greatest drivers, still performing at a very high level, capable of winning races in the right car, and he's not there. You, anytime you lose a double world champion who's still operating at a good level, which Alonso clearly is, where did you put him in your driver races last year, Ed? Third? Uh, yes, third, third, yeah. Second out top 50 because we threw in the... I think he's been in the so, top five it, throughout he, the V6 Exactly, era, he's he? remained mega, hasn't he? I think we all pretty much agree on that. 100%. So from that point of view, yes, you are obviously losing somebody who is fantastic and it's always a shame for him when everyone loses that. But it's not like we're going to have you know, a bunch of talentless idiots running around, you know, look at the people coming in. You know, Leclerc's getting into a top car, which I think we all think is correct. George Russell, Lando Norris are coming in from when they got... So it just, it's, you know, it, it, F1 moves on. I think Ben said this earlier on. It just, it, you know, it will fill that hole. I mean, I, I don't get emotional because I'm too old and cynical now. Um, I don't get too emotional about motorsport very often, but I did I did get a little bit at the, the last the last Some tears. round in 2018. Not quite tears, yeah. but, you know, uh, when Alonso uh, was going around with Vettel and Hamilton, on the slowdown lap in Abu Dhabi, and you just think that, yeah, you know, the fact that he's going, it is, it is a real shame. It's the closest you know, he could get to them. Exactly, yeah, and it is, it is a real shame. In an alternative universe, like those three would have had some unbelievably good fights over the last few years, but it's not happened, and he's going, and someone will fill the vacuum because that's how Formula One. You know, in ten years' time, we won't have Hamilton or Vettel either, but there'll be a whole new guys, load of guys, will be talking about how mega they are. It's interesting you make that point because I think Verstappen said that he was slightly upset that he wasn't going to have these fights with Alonso. You know, he's going to, they're going to miss each other, aren't they? Because Alonso's bowing out just as Max is really coming good. And Lewis has had a few of those battles, obviously a direct one in the title fight that we mentioned in 07, but Verstappen won't get to pit his wits against Alonso, we think. 
uh, in a straight fight. And that is a bit of a shame because you you like to see the new guys coming in properly tested against the established stars, don't you? And yes, we have got some. We've got Vettel, we've got Hamilton. But Alonso is in that bracket and we won't get to see whether your Leclerc's, your Verstappen's, your Gasly's or whoever you think are the coming guys take him down in the way that Alonso took down mm. Schumacher. What, what he has done though, and this is perhaps moving on to his legacy, is that he does bridge that gap between Mark Schumacher era and the current lot. And so you, we know that Alonso could go toe-to-toe with Schumacher and come out on top. I'm not saying he's necessarily greater. That's just, well, we can come on to that sort of thing later. But you know, he did the job. So the people that come along afterwards, people like Hamilton and Vettel, you know, they matched up to him in title fights. Well, then they must be... You know, it, it, it underlines the strength of the current generation, even when Alonso's gone. And obviously the next load coming in, like the Clerks and Verstappens, will do so against... Hamilton and Vettel. So, you know, there's that kind of passing on. But I can understand why Max would be disappointed. I thought Lewis's quotes at the end of 2017 were interesting when he's basically saying he basically was looking at Vettel, Alonso and Verstappen as the three guys. He's like, he thought, reading between the lines, yeah, I know I can beat Vettel. Don't know about Verstappen yet because he's not, mm, Alonso, yeah, I haven't had that test really for a while. And he know, they all, they all know who the good ones are. And those, I think those four know that the other three are the, are the guys to be looking at. But I think then in answering your question, Ed, that is a shame for F1 because if you've got yes. your reigning... rivalries make it. You've got your reigning double world champion saying, you know, the, Alonso is one of the three guys he most has to watch out for on the grid, excepting all the others. Okay, at the time he said that, he didn't know anything about Leclerc and we won't know him probably until the end of this year. But Alonso is in that bracket for Lewis, and it's a shame if a driver of that quality is not on the grid, uh, regardless agree. of my, how it's happened. Yeah, absolutely. My one caveat to that is I think he does he's doing the world of motorsport a favour. Because he's still this box office, he is able to put... And I know fans of IndyCar racing or sports car racing don't like it that when Alonso does rock up, he gets so much exposure. Well, we got abuse, didn't we, for, exactly. for focusing on him uh, uh, during qualifying for Le Mans. Exactly. But he has lifted... He, when he goes to these other non-F1 series and races, he raises the profile of those categories. Uh, and that's great for motorsport generally. It's great for us because it means that we can hopefully... You know, we, we, you know, we get accused of being too F1 centric, but actually we we are all motorsport fans, and Alonso doing a massive favour by still at the top of his game, going and racing sports car or an Indy car, and I think that's really good for. So it's F1's loss, it's motorsport leading game. a revolution in motorsport, as he would say. <laughs> yes, well, you've answered that question well, so we, we can we can move on to the next one now, Ben, which is what makes Alonso so good on track, the the behind the wheel stuff, the what makes him so quick, so good. It's, it's the improvisation, I think ultimately uh i think of not that i was <laughs> not that i'm old enough to have seen this but from what i've read uh i make the comparison with jim clark a guy that had a reputation for being able to drive around problems drive any car he was given um that's how alonso seems to me he had he's had some bad cars in the in the latter stages of his career and that throughout the time that i was covering f1 I have been covering F1 closely and he just can wrestle lap times out of these bad machines basically and leave very, very capable, highly rated teammates gasping for air. Well, if you look at the years when he's had probably the most troublesome cars, this year, well, 2018 against Van Dorn, out-qualified him every race, an unstable car, improvised, 
destroyed him in, in qualifying. 2014 Ferrari, Raikkonen was nowhere. 2012 Ferrari, Massa was nowhere. And Van Dorn is a, a driver that previously was bracketed with your Leclerc's, your Verstappen's. Seriously, as a, as a guy who is going to define the new era of Formula well, 1. But Alonso, quick, Alonso has buried him. But look how quick he... I mean, he, he, he came on much more strongly in 17, second half of the year against Alonso, then 18, just just nowhere. The car's got harder. Alonso just picks it up, makes it work for him. He there, manhandles there, it, doesn't yeah, he? There's, there's never been a point in Alonso's career where there's been this thing of, oh, the, my, my driving style doesn't suit this car because he just gets in it and he pushes it to the edge of the performance envelope. He will improvise. And at the heart of that, he's just got phenomenal car control. And, and I've said this before, he's not a classicist as a driver. It's not all beautiful, precise, perfect lines and everything. He's a... He can do whatever he's, he needs he's, to he's, do. He's a, he? a street fighter. He's not limited by the rear. He's not limited by the front. Yeah. He just does what needs to be done to get that yeah, time yeah. out of a given car on a given day on a given track. And I, some people will say that the downside of that is, well, where, how do you know where you are with the car? Like that's because they because there isn't a, a preference or an obvious limitation. You can't construct your development or your setup around that. But Andres Stella, who's obviously worked with Alonso very closely in his last two teams says, well, actually, he's, he's so intelligent that he's precisely able to delineate between his own limitation and the car's limitation. He knows which bit he's affecting the most, which bit the car is affecting the most, and therefore, actually, he provides the perfect reference point for the engineers. And Eric Boulier added to that, saying, we know, when obviously he was at McLaren, we know when we put the car out with Alonso in it, within one, two laps, where it is, straight away, he is... He is the the north point that we follow. And this feeds into this whole idea of teams becoming Alonso-centric and the other politics that then surrounds that is because he's so good. If, if, if you know you've got this almost computer driving the car, as an engineer, you are going to gravitate towards that. You're going to follow that. You're going to throw any kind of bizarre, crazy, we might get two tenths out of this impossible-to-drive development at him because you know he's going to be able to use it. Whereas we saw with Van Dorn as good a driver as he undoubtedly is, and he'll go on, I'm sure, to have a great career outside of F1. Maybe he'll come back one day. He he could not drive a McLaren with the same limitation or the same developments that compromised in other areas that Alonso could. For, for me, what you described there is a Ronnie Peterson, Gilles Villeneuve-type ability to get a car around the track and then an Alain Prost ability to talk about what he's doing when he's with his engineer. So I think that's a pretty awesome combination. All and sport- it's, uh, just, just on that point, ultimately, that thing about, you know, where a car is, you know, there is a, you could, you could probably calculate, there is a theoretical limitation to, to the lap time a car can do. It's all physics, isn't it? I mean, it's too complicated to do precisely. But if you can get a, lap, a specific lap time out of the car, that shows by definition, I mean, axiomatically, that the car is capable of, a, of that lap time. So that, that's what, that's the ultimate driver for a team, isn't it? Yes, because you're not trying to. You can then set up the car to go as to go to it close to its theoretical maximum, and you've got a guy who'll hang on to it. And, you know, even down to the way the car is mid corner, that, that kind of thing. He's quite the, the reason he's so good at that. It's not just he thinks his way how to provoke the car, and it's, he can react to it. He can say, right, I'm going to chuck this car into the corner, and I'm going to deal with it. Yeah, and that's not. It's not a precise. This is what I mean about not being a classicist. It's not a precise. It's not an artistic way. It's almost this sort of brute force. It's Mansell-esque. This, right, I'm going to chuck it in and I'll, I'll deal with it. And there was a good example in 2018 in Suzuka practice when Nico Hülkenberg had a crash coming through the S's, had a bit of a moment, it was a moment of a bit of crosswind. And actually Alonso had had a similar moment 
not long before, but caught it. I mean, no moment's identical. But it's just the fact that actually Alonso can deal with that. He can react. And if he can save the car, he will. You know, it doesn't mean he never makes a mistake, never spins, never goes off because he does. But it's just that ability to go right to the very edge and look, this, look this into the chasm, but, but make it Step work. away from it. And this yeah. is where teams get themselves in, not into trouble, but find difficulty because they know their engineers can develop things. They can do things in, in their simulations and oh, that, that will make the car three tenths quicker. But things are always a compromise, aren't they? That you can, you can give a car theoretically three tenths, but it's only three tenths if the driver can access it. And if it affects other things in certain ways, it means the driver ends up going two tenths slower. It's not a gain. And Alonso doesn't find those limitations at McLaren. Van Dorn did. And then you start having this separation where the car needs to go in this direction, according to the engineers, and they've got one driver who can whatever they throw at him, deal with it, but your other guy can't. And then suddenly, overall for the team, that's challenging because you want both of your cars going as quickly as possible and scoring as many points as possible. Whereas if you've only got one doing that job, you're half as effective as a team. I think the improvisation thing is the word I would have used as well. But there was a a piece in All Sport in 2005 comparing Raikkonen and Alonso, who were at the time... The next, well, okay, Montoya as well was, yeah, got, got to mention, but really it was Raikkonen versus Alonso. And the basic argument is that on a perfect lap, when the car is absolutely bang on, Raikkonen will be quicker. I don't think he would be now, but in those days he would be because he had colossal corner speed, pre- precision, all the rest of it. But nine times out of ten, you don't have the perfect race car. And that's Alonso where Fernando will mops up. find a way to get this. But I think that's also why he has this reputation as a relentless driver. If you look at his lap times at Le Mans last year in the Toyota, over the best 10 laps, best 20 laps, he was second, third, quickest of the Toyota guys. You extend that stint longer and longer, and he moves further and further ahead. And I think it's because it doesn't matter whether you've got high fuel, low fuel, tyres and knackered, tyres and new, whatever, he will find the best way of getting that particular package at that moment around the track in the quickest possible time. And, and that is at the heart of what makes him so great because, for example, if you ask anyone who was at McLaren in 2007, they'd say, well, Lewis actually probably on any given qualifying lap could maybe find extract a little bit more speed from it, potentially. But in the races, Alonso was always the guy who was there all the time. I don't, I, I think yeah, the car's evolving and changing yeah. and dropping in and out exactly, more yeah. than I, any I, other I point. Don't, I don't think you'd sort of sit there and argue the, the greatest qualifier in F1 history Alonso's not quite in that top. He's not there with the, the Sanders and probably the Hamiltons as well. Until he's, Van Dorn, no, no. But he's, he's still he's still exceptionally good. I mean, we're talking the best of the best there, so he's still up there, but not right at the very top. But just as an all round package and that ability to just to operate and get the most out of it in in all of these conditions is incredible. Le Mans is a great example where you've got so many variables feeding into it, but he's able to adapt, and that's what the great drivers do. They can they can adapt to situations, and that's why there's no car he couldn't drag a lap time out of. That's why he can demolish a teammate like, like Van Dorn in a difficult car. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's also why he hasn't ended up being one of the great qualifiers, because you'd think that that ability to adapt and improvise would make him brilliant on a Saturday, but it might also mean that in terms of chasing the absolute finite points of setup, you don't need to because you know he can deal with problems so well. Whereas, of course, your Hamiltons, maybe the key to them getting that little bit more is that they they hone in just that little bit more. They they try not to live on their wits quite so much. No, very much so. We're talking tiny margins there. Of course, That's not yeah. a weakness of Alonso. And, so, and Alonso would say, well, I'm not a bad qualifier. Look how many times I've 
oh, being 100%. my teammate through the through I mean, the he, years. He, he is an extremely good qualifier, but it just says about what makes him truly exceptional, what the, the strengths uh, strengths really are. But you know, it's uh, in bad cars, isn't it, where he really shines? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is that is Often. one of the. The, the hidden joys, the fact that he hasn't been able to fight for titles is one thing, but the fact he's been in some bad cars for so long recently, you get to appreciate actually the full extent of his ability because he, he has destroyed drivers like Raikkonen and Van Dorn who are really, really, really good drivers. There are sessions from the 2018 season watching tracks I was doing every Grand Prix weekend and places like Baku and Singapore just seeing the, the ability to hustle the car and that, that just showed Van Dorn just kind of constrained by the limitations of it whereas Alonso is willing to kind of right, put it on the edge and, and, and make it work. It's absolutely spectacular to watch and it's uh, this, this, this thing I've said about him not being a classicist it's not a criticism there's different ways to, to, to skin a cat as it were and the way Alonso he's a cat skinner but, well, that's one of the nastier myths about no um, but <laughs> cut actually the way Alonso does it is the hardest way to do it because yes. it does rely on corrections on reactions on feel on improvising on throwing yourself into the unknown so often it's one of the reasons why i make the comparison with mansell because remember when he got far more out of the active suspension williams fw14b than patrese after patrese actually the previous season had been a bit more nip and tuck with him it's because mansell had that mindset of being able to chuck it into a corner know the active was going to behave in a certain way know that he'd be able to deal with it and it's just that confidence, supreme confidence to to say, I'm going to go in and sort that out. Not many people can can achieve that. Well, we've not even touched upon another one of his great strengths, really, which is just think he's just all round awareness of what is going on. You know, this this became apparent at Indy when the spotters were like, well, he kind of already knows where everyone is, which is not normal on... He doesn't on, need a spotter. It's not really normal at, at Indianapolis. But you see it in all sorts of examples. You know, he's... When I was, we'll get onto his greatest races list soon. But what comes out when you look at it, so many times he's finding space on a on a first lap. You know, he comes through four or five places ahead of where he's where he qualified, or uh, you know, or Austria last year. I think it was Austria. You could see he knew that that crash was coming. He just couldn't do anything about it. Who did he get hit by? Was it Kvyat? He could see him looking in the onboard. He knew that that was all happening before anyone else did. He just had nowhere to go. And you see that all the time. He just knows what's going on. Because it's bandwidth, lots of capacity to, to, to know what's going on. Capacity is the key word. And it's one Pat Simmons used as well. He said uh, in 2003, Alonso set the fastest lap in the Canadian Grand Prix. So this is just just when he's still on the rise, really. And he won his first race that season, didn't he? I think it was Hungary. Yeah, it's Hungary. Yeah. Um, and Pat said uh, during that lap, he was talking to us nearly all the way around. And he says loads of drivers, they slow down that little bit. They don't like to be spoken to on the radio at certain points. We, we hear that even now. Only talk to me on the straights, you know, this, that and the other. He said Alonso talked to us all the way around and set the fastest lap of the race. And it's, that's the, the amount of his brain that he's using to operate the Formula One car is that much smaller than everyone else, which just gives him that much greater width to do all the other things, including engineering. It's one of the things that's a little bit of a shame that in the past few years when radio has become ubiquitous in the, the coverage, that kind of thing, that Alonso FM has become a bit of a comedy channel, which I think does him down a bit because we haven't been able to hear him operating in that. And there are examples in your greatest wins list where, that exemplify that. But before we get on to, to the, the top 10 Alonso uh, wins, what about Alonso's legacy, Kev? I mean, statistically speaking, he's the fourth of his era behind Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel in terms of championships, wins, pole positions. That's the numerical argument. But so... Where does he stand? Is he is he the fourth best driver of this era? Is he someone who should have been one of the top six all time greats, but isn't quite in that rank because of what what's happened? What 
Um, well, although I, I love statistics, um, <laughs> uh, I think they're an indicator rather than the final proof. Um, no, I'm, well, that list, I put him ahead of Vettel. Um, you get into a bit more of a debate. In fact, we had one last well, he, year. About, it's, it's difficult because um, Hamilton and Schumacher are unquestionably in your top in the top few. Well, uh, I, so I d- that that becomes a really hard bar to. I, I think Alonso's a top ten for me. Top ten to twelve ever. Um, I think that if you were doing a straight comparison with, I mean, Lewis is probably the easiest one. I think that Hamilton has got to the point in the last eighteen months, two years, where he's probably at the same level that Alonso has been at his peak. We might argue above if you throw in the qualifying thing. But for me, if you look at their whole career, I think Alonso got to his peak much sooner. I can't think of a year like uh, Lewis had in 2011, where he seemed to bounce off for Massa or a Sauber every other... And, and Jensen Button beaten by Miles in the yeah, championship. Yeah, 11 was a... You know, Alonso hasn't really... You know, Button, uh, Lewis, I think... 15 maybe I think Alonso, 15, he was Alonso, off it, but he still wasn't he was beaten by Button yeah. but he wasn't uh, Alonso, he admitted himself to, um, to yeah. me in Brazil actually but, I was in a, a small press briefing with a few other journalists and he, I asked him you know to rate his own season as you kind of do at that <laughs> point just because it's interesting to see what yeah. drivers make of, make of how they've done and whether they're overblowing their own performance or underselling it and I was surprised at how honest he was he said I'm just not I, he'd still been brilliant but he felt he had been below his own best because I guess the project just didn't anywhere near match uh, what he, he does, thought it, was going to happen. Alonso does also have a slightly weird thing he does sometimes that when he's a bit annoyed with the world, he gets this slightly belligerent way of driving. We saw it a little bit at the end of 2018, like when Stroll forced him off at Suzuka, which fine, Stroll was in the wrong there, but then just gunning it on the throttle across track, those three track cuts in Abu Dhabi Mike, in the season finale. But they're not just, mistakes, Mike, are they? They're conscious, no, they're, they're conscious. And I remember him doing it difference. in his Renault days when he got irritated in a race at Hockenheim. It's just pointlessly trying to hang on around the outside <laughs> of someone. He did it in France last year when Vettel was coming through the field, fairly pointlessly tried to battle with him and spun. But Mike, there's no Mike, point in doing it. And there's this kind of, it's not that he stops trying, it's just like he goes a bit, oh, Yeah, that's probably fair. But my counterpoint to that is he spent an awful lot more time of his career in mediocre machinery than most of the greats do so they're not I think most greats if they got to the second year or even the first year at McLaren Honda 2015 having had a bad year for, oh I'm going to take my paycheck and retire but he, you know, he still was putting you know still putting in high performance he was still one of the highest rated guys in 2016 2017 2018 I think that's remarkable so yeah I, I think that's quite if you're comparing him to the other greats you, that almost gets cancelled out by the, the number of extra times he's had had to face that particular challenge. One of the other ways of looking at it, I've, uh, as you both know, because I bored you both with it, I've <laughs> done the average driver racings for Autosport over the last 10 years because we've been doing the F1 driver. In fact, you, you, you two have done most of them. And the average across that time is that the peaks, the best seasons have been put in by Vettel and Hamilton. And the average, until the last couple of years, Hamilton and Alonso were almost exactly the same to the, to I think, the nearest hundredth of a mark. Wow. So not even a tenth that close. So uh, I, I think that shows the consistency that Alonso has had. And it kind of backs up our point about he's, re- he's relentless in races, he's relentless in seasons, maybe that quite... He's relentless out of the car. He's, yeah, absolutely. He's so just from, a relentless person. Isn't he, he? He, he, I think we can say he, he is in that all-time great great group. I mean, let's say... Definitely. I think the stats don't do him justice, do they? He's one of those drivers who, for whatever reason, and they're, they're a myriad... He just doesn't have the numbers to back up how good a driver he is. I, I agree with Kev. I'd put him slightly above Vettel, even though he has half the number of well, championships. One, one of the things that also Alonso has is almost won the title in a 12 Ferrari, which particularly yeah. at the start of the season was a real, really difficult car. And, and he that was Alonso almost winning the championship, much the same way as 
he dragged McLaren to sixth in the Constructors' Championship if, in 2018. That, that was Alonso doing it. If I was being really cheeky, I'd say he never drove into anyone to try and win a championship like Schumacher. He would not have allowed Nico Rosberg to win his 2016 championship like Lewis did because he wouldn't have messed up the starts and he wouldn't have lost the 2018 championship in Ferrari because he wouldn't have given as many points away as Vettel. But of course, that's... It's never as simple as that. You don't know unless they're but, actually but in the situation. But he's, he's right point. in there with all of them. We should also say that he came very close to winning the, the, 20, uh, the 2007 championship, very close to winning the 2010 championship, very close to winning 2012. He was Petrovd in 2010, wasn't yeah. he? <laughs> so there's, there's, there's three championships straight away that he came ultra, ultra close to. So suddenly you do that, he's got five championships and it changes. So I think it's kind of, his is, his is what you might, he's like a high Two two time champion, if you want to put it that way. He's a statistic. Just, yeah. He's a statistical yeah. anomaly, isn't yeah. he? He is. His, his statistics are amazing, but they're not quite amazing enough. No, that's that's probably very fair, and it's uh, it, it shows that statistics can tell you a lot of things, but you have to be responsible with the use of them, and they're they're only part of the story. There's a there's a wider picture. Kev, regular podcast listeners love that one of your favourite things to do is assemble lists top is 10 victories true? lists you've got a cult following I Kev. love lists yeah you do you do love a list you've done it for Alonso inevitably uh, good chance to have a look at his great drives in detail and we can disagree with you a, a little bit more um, tradition dictates let's let's work from number 10 backwards in the, the ta- these are all wins aren't they rather than no no all, these, all are, these, 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 these are races um, oh, they are races aren't they actually, yeah we, I, and I have to say this is one of the hardest lists to do Partly because he spent so much time in mediocre machinery, <laughs> which means you don't get as much coverage with uh, with that. And partly because of Alonso's own rather amusing to start with and then slightly tedious thing that he did during the McLaren second round, so part of his career of every, ra- every race was his greatest until the next one. You should have done his so, top 10 radio comments because yeah, he well, was getting a lot of coverage on that basis. So yeah, well, that was you did that in our F1 review, so true, please yeah. look out for that if you haven't one already. <laughs> there's, there's a brilliant one when he was asked, um, I think it was in Zalagos, uh, someone asked him what races, other races stood out in his career. He was talking about some great races and he said, oh, all the races in 2010 to 2014 at Ferrari. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But even when you actually, you actually gave me a list um, that you asked him about, and even then, what I'm what I'm trying to look for. This will come up when we get to number one. Is the best drives, not the most important, not the most emotionally charged, all the rest of it. And, and he picked things like Hungary '03, the first win, um, and, and home wins, and that and Monaco because it's Monaco. So that's not the same question. That's an emotional response. The first yeah. one's always. It's not. So that's not. Well, you don't get emotional about motorsport, so, Kev, as you well, said at yeah, the top of the show. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but, but he gets I'll emotional make an about exception for Alonso. I do get emotional. <laughs> He's right, getting anyway, quite so, worked up. I think. I, I yeah. Oh, it's been so long on this. Anyway, right, number ten. <laughs> 2008 Japanese Grand Prix, which was... Uh, Fuji? Yeah, at Fuji, yeah. Um, which was, I think, one of yours. Yeah, uh, was you flagged up, Ed. Well, do you want to take it from here, then? Tell us oh, why man. that was a great race. The thing, <laughs> the thing that really struck me in that race was that there was some nonsense at the start when Hamilton sort of forced the two Ferraris off track. So you end up with this bizarre situation where you had Alonso uh, second in the Renault early on behind Kibitza in the BMW, Sauber. And of course, Kibitza had already won a race earlier that season. But the thing that really stood out to me in that one is that I mean, actually Kubica drove a really good race but he was over the radio he was almost calling it's like right we'll do this this calling the strategy I know it was a little bit easier because because the fuel uh, levels dictated things, Alonso doing other people's it, jobs it, for them it was just again. how in control he was it's like he you know right I'm second I know how to win this race I've got this guys we'll do that that yeah no problem and of course he and he did and Kubica did everything he could have done in that race it was actually a really good drive from Kubica he held off if memory serves Raikkonen in a much quicker car later on so you know up against somebody in a machine that's similar sort of sort of level by that that stage in the season 
and just Alonso had it completely under control. If you'd asked him halfway around the first lap, are you going to win this a bit? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I've got this. It's a classic example, and there are a couple of them in here, of sniff of victory, bang. Knows exactly what he has to do and, and, and does it. And of course, the great irony with that win is it came the race after Singapore, the controversial 08 victory. I mean, it's, I mean, okay, you mentioned that he had a bit of help because Hamilton forced the Ferraris wide, but it's an example of Alonso winning in not the best car, isn't it? And that is that yeah. is something that uh, when Alonso was asked about Hamilton a few years ago and you know what makes a great driver, he said, well, I put Hamilton up in that bracket because he's had seasons winning in machinery that doesn't really deserve to win. And Look, Alonso, 2000, Alonso his, did the same. His 2009 season, Hamilton, was brilliant. Yeah, yeah a couple of years ago, uh, some, somebody at McLaren said that they thought Alonso was the only guy who could win the championship in not the best car. I think you'd now th- add Lewis to that. Yes. Lewis has now shown that. And they are, they are the two. And they both, I think they both respect that Absolutely. in each other. And, and that's the argument you would use against Vettel, in that he hasn't really... Showing that he has won some races in not the not the best car, but one of the two best. But he's yet to really string that kind of relentless season together in a car that's not quite up to scratch. But I digress. So, would you like to move on to number nine? Number ten was two thousand eight Japanese Grand Prix. Number nine is the two thousand eighteen Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Um, it's quite mm. tricky <laughs> doing the, It's quite tricky doing the McLaren races for the reasons I kind of slightly. I, I kind of took the easy path of least resistance with McLaren Honda and did a sidebar in the magazine on it um, rather than put one of them in because I thought it was difficult. But that one, because to first of all stagger back to the pits, if you remember, he had, I think, punctures on both right-hand side tyres, floor damage, all sorts of things. It was a mess. And some drivers, Kimi Raikkonen, would have pulled over and, and gone, right, back, back to the hotel. And he somehow dragged it back. Um, well, Alonso said himself, didn't he? No, no one else, first well, of all, would have made it back to the pits. From, from yeah. he, he rated that as his best race of the year. Yeah, that he? car was very bad. In fact, because he, when he came into the pits, it was like it, he basically was coming in not expecting to be able to get into the pit box. But because he couldn't turn left very much, he actually hit the wall, the pit wall, <laughs> and right, off the wall, which conveniently pointed him kind of in the right direction. So, Here you go, guys, sort this out. But what I think this shows is just this will to kind of carry on. It's like drag it back, and it's like right go out in this car that's been battered had loads of floor damage all i mean it, it, it he said it actually it wasn't it didn't feel too bad but it was damaged and it bits were missing but to be able to go out and have that that mindset just to go out and say right i'm going to give it a go and in a car that you've that's had to that's taken a few big hits so then once once the restart happens and you've got to go into that first corner and hit the brakes that that takes something in a car that that could easily for all you know you put a big load through the through the front suspension and something fails. Well, you, you rated it as one of the best drives of the year, didn't you? Yeah, it was, because it was just... I mean, he, he passed, what, half a dozen cars in that race? In in a hobbled car, in a car that already, having watched the way he was driving previously in the weekend, during free practice, he was having to hustle it to get, get lap time out of it. So it, it was just a, a very improbable win. It j- just shows that sort of indomitable spirit. And it's, it says a lot that it's... <laughs> from his second McLaren, well, you're picking out a, what was it, a seventh place to... Uh, well, it's sort of appropriate, really, isn't it? Yeah, so, so it says a lot. Uh, best and, seventh place and, and, ever. Yeah, well, that's probably fair. Um, Might well be, certainly his best oh, seventh that, place no, ever. That's a hard list to do, crikey. There you go, um, Kev, new yeah. challenge. Uh, that's a lot, long project. And the next one really sums up a particular era in his career for me as well. So 2011 British Grand Prix. This was the one race where they temporarily banned blown diffusers, the exhaust blown 
thing that Red Bull were... Oh, the really, Renault-Red Bull yeah, and ev- technology, everyone thought, yeah. Everyone thought it was going to hurt Red Bull. Well, actually, it really hurt McLaren. <laughs> but it did help Ferrari because... It did, uh, yeah. yeah. So they were, they were within, instead of being three quarters of a second off the pace of the Red Bulls, he was within a tenth or two in qualifying. And he just chased them relentlessly, classic Alonso in the race. Um, and they both had slightly slow pit stops uh, and he jumped them during the stops. They then got stuck behind Hamilton, who was struggling with the McLaren. I think he was che- chewed up his tyres. And in the few laps it took for Vettel to get past Hamilton, Alonso put 10 seconds on them and that was it, race one. Like, they were never going to get back to him for then. He ended up winning by 16 anyway. So it was once again, uh, this is within the range of winnability. Bang, he's done it. Yeah, it's um, a seizing opportunity. And he spent most of that part of his career chasing Red Bulls, didn't he? And that was one day where he actually turned the tables on them. It's interesting, isn't it? If you, I wonder if... Uh... Now, if if Formula One in a parallel universe had been a one-mate category and you had more of this equalised performance between the cars, Alonso probably would have won so much more because you take that little bit of performance away from his main rivals, not completely close the gap, but he's able to make the difference, isn't he? And that's that's another sign of a special yeah, driver. I think you're Alonso, Kubica, Hamilton is your three from that era then if all the cars mm. are the same. What's number seven, Kev? The 2012 Malaysian Grand Prix. Ah, yes. Where the Sergio Perez should have won. Which Sergio Perez should have won. It was a great day for Perez and Sauber. And if you remember, this is mainly famous for the, the radio call of, that Sauber put over to Perez. Basically, don't mess this up. We need a second. Oh, God. Which, yeah. depending on when they broadcast that radio message to when it actually went out, was just before Perez made that mistake no, and basically handed the win I'm to I'm told it didn't come quite... Because it, it, it sounds wasn't. like they told him and then he went off. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't quite that close. So, I mean... Normally a bit of, there's normally a bit of lag, isn't there? In yeah, terms there of was a reasonable amount of lag on that one. It wasn't, like, it, wasn't, it wasn't like 30 seconds before, certainly. As much as that was a mega Perez drive, it's quite clear, going over the stats and the report, that the Sauber was just a faster car than the Ferrari in the dry. Alonso managed to, be by being impressive in the damp and making the right call with the team, tire, got himself Where ahead. did he qualify? Eighth for that race? Comrade from my head, yeah, it was something. Well, that was, that was, that was, the, that was uh, early uh, in the season, wasn't it? Was, like yeah. when it Malaysia was. was second in the calendar, and yeah. it was the bonkers 2012. D- nobody can decide who the fastest person is, and every, right. everyone's winning races. And the Ferrari was terrible. It did, yeah. th- that Ferrari really didn't have much of a front end. So I remember watching it in testing, and it was just like it was such an effort to get it into the corners. And Malaysia is not a good track for that because no, there's a lot no. of there's a lot of those long medium corners. speed, quickish yeah. corners, a couple of double double corners. So yeah, it's it's not understeer will kill you there, won't it? Yeah, exactly. So that again he was trying to drive around that but yeah a, a great win and it'd been fascinating to see what would happen if he'd ended up battling with uh, Perez right near the end because um, Perez was closing in on him it's a, that would have made it even uh, even more spectacular but yeah a, a very unlikely win what's number six 2003 Spanish Grand Prix so the temptation was to put the Hungaro ring in for this one. The emotional but, reasons, but the Kev, the exactly, robot, so decided no. So, and actually, I don't know. I don't think it would have been you, Ed. It might have been Tony Dodgins actually at this point doing the driver ratings. When I then I looked at this and then went back to the ratings, and it's backed up what I'd kind of thought. Which in was, 03? in oh three, yeah, definitely pre Ed. Yeah, yeah. So Hungary. He was on pole, we got the lead, the Renault was well suited to the ring, and Mark Webber in the Jaguar did him a massive favour by getting him to second and holding the rest of the field up. Brilliant. By the time someone else got through, Alonso had a 20-second lead and Alonso is not going to throw away a 20-second win. So it was not a difficult win for Alonso, even though it was emotionally important. The Spanish Grand Prix was the, a prelude to what his career was going to be, which was this relentless whole Grand Prix of qualifying laps. So he had, they reckoned he was 85 brake horsepower down on the Ferraris, um, of Rubens Barrichello and Mark Schumacher. 
looked like he was going to overtake them at the start, but it was a long run to the first corner and he just ran out of steam before he got there. So he slotted back into third. Chase Rubens the whole stint. Did that classic thing, staying out, banging the laps, jumps to second. Schumacher-esque. Schumacher-esque, yeah. And then, which at the time must have been amazing, because this is off the... We're into season four of Schumacher and Ferrari, win everything. Then catches up with Schumacher and puts him under pressure. Can't get past him, because it's Mark Schumacher and he's got a straight-line speed advantage. And Yeah, that's a tough his, gig, isn't it? It's a tough gig. <laughs> and what basically what happened was that the tyres... His tyres were better. He was on Michelin's, I think. Or better at the end of the stint, so he was able to close. Um, so his in-laps, I think, were all better than Michael's. But his out-laps, two of his three out-laps were as well. So he was just... He was, he was just, out Michael Schumachering Michael Schumacher. This, and I think, um, what's what made the point in time, this is probably the moment that Michael Schumacher went, oh, yeah, that's the guy. He's the guy that's going to be the, the one I've got to worry about. And he was um, right. And he was right. And in the end, Michael did win. So it's probably one of Michael's better. With hindsight, we can go and now say Alonso is a proper rival to be worrying about. So one of Michael's decent wins well but, uh, with the engine advantage with a, you with might a car, say probably car advantage yeah so I think that that was the only 10 out of 10 Alonso scored in autosport that year Hungary got 9 and that sealed it for me really I just think that was the that was flagging up of what was to come no that's a very important race and one that's probably not talked about anywhere near enough good choice so you're doing well so far what's number 5 2007 European Grand Prix famous finish so most most that was a rental race, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. a cast flight. Marcus Vingerhot led briefly on his uh, day of F1 days debut. <laughs> I think it was his only F1 race, actually. Ed? Uh, Marcus Vingerhot, yeah, that was his, uh, his only. Yeah, completely <laughs> random. Alex but, yeah. Burt's almost uh, took himself What, what a great story to dine yeah. off for the yeah, rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, I led the only race I ever <laughs> F1 race started. But, um, so, yeah, it was a crazy race. Um, 2007 generally went with whichever of McLaren and Ferrari were quicker for that particular track. Yeah, there Lewis has made really that point many wins times. against the run of play. For me, this is the one that goes against the run of play because Ferrari, were, it was, they were quicker. Lewis had a big crash in qualifying, qualified near the back, had a spin, basically was never in contention. And uh, Raikkonen tried to go into the pits uh, when the weather changed, <laughs> missed the entry, had to go around again. Massa and Alonso came in. So they were the leading quick runners, basically. And whenever it was... Oh, that was right. The first stop, Alonso couldn't have his wing changed either. McLaren couldn't get it to do what he wanted. So he had, again, this is the improvisation. The car wasn't where he wanted, needed it to be. Chasing after Massa. Massa's pulling away because he's back in the you know, pre, pre-shunt days when Massa was doing a good job at Ferrari. And then the last few laps, it starts to rain. And Alonso closes on Massa. They come in, and it's three and a half seconds between them when they come in. And within a lap or two, they're together. And then that's what I thought was one of the rather tasty overtaking move around the outside of turn five. Massa slides way beyond the apex and hits Alonso, even though he's given him enough room to get a bus down the inside, to be honest. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a great bit after the race where Massa's sort of going, learn, learn, um, to Alonso. I'm not quite sure what. Fernando's supposed to learn from that. You've driven into his car when he's gone. How to lose a race? Yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> it's one of those things. Fantastic where win from Alonso. If the roles were reversed, do you think there's no chance Alonso wouldn't have held on to that lead? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think it was that. It was that. It was the that was where the driver made the difference in that season. I think, right, and and just the drama of having a late pass for victory, which doesn't happen that often. Yeah, love that. Good. And it'd been such a dramatic race already. You know, it's got one of the. It probably would go quite high if you were to list all the. We're nearly up to a thousand Grand Prix and World Championship races. That's going to be in the top, I don't know, top fifty, top hundred, something like that. Look yeah. out for this next list. From oh Kevin no, Turner. no, please no. <laughs> <laughs> right, what's what's next, Kev? 
Uh, 2005 Japanese Grand Prix. So, number four, oh, a classic number race. So most this would definitely be high up on the list of great races, but it's most famous for uh, Raikkonen's again another late pass, passing Fisichella on the last, going on to the last lap to win from sixteenth was it something like that. Sixteenth, uh, eighteenth. Uh, Fernando was sixteenth. I am actually doing Kimi Raikkonen list. This might be quite high up on his list, but the reason I put it in Fernando's as well for two reasons. One. It's another one of his relentless drives, blah, blah, blah. His fastest lap <laughs> is within thousands of Kimmies, and they're both a second a lap faster than everyone else. Actually, wow. it was 17 on the grid, Kimmy. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, the famous pass on Schumacher round the outside at 130R. Uh, Renault's date had the entry speed of 206 miles an hour around the outside of the driver that a lot of people think is the greatest of all time. That's, I mean, that's pretty mega. The reason he didn't win the race or didn't have a chance to win the race is because of the ridiculous thing with Christian Clean's Red Bull. Went to go around the outside in the chicane, clean out braked himself. Alonso went, not having this, I'm going to cut across the chicane. Got ahead of the Red Bull, backed off that the Red Bull through, then slipstreamed him down towards turn one. This is what Hamilton did at the Spa. spa. And yeah. it still got him into trouble, still didn't got it? Yeah, yeah, so the team went, you're probably going to have to get, Charlie Whiting said you're going to have to get that back. They got on the radio. Alonso had already put some time on him because he was chasing after Schumacher who was doing a similar cut through the field job. Backed off, let Red Bull, the Red Bull back pass, at which point Renault's appeal to Whiting is successful. And they go, nope, don't worry, you don't have to give the place oh. back. By, by which time he's lost that time. He has to go back past him. When he then passes Schumacher later, it's later in the stint. He comes, he has to come in early. He drops into traffic that he wouldn't have done. So by the time the stops are worked out, he's behind Raikkonen's McLaren instead of ahead of him. Raikkonen gets to Schumacher first, goes past him first, goes away, off towards Fizzy. And obviously, um, you know... And you imagine Alonso would have met less resistance from Fisichella. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that key moment really was why we didn't have a Raikkonen. You could have had an amazing Raikkonen and Alonso both catching Fisichella. It would have been an even more amazing finish. And the final thing that really put an icing on the cake is um, uh, Mark Hughes did the report for that one. And uh, to take third, Alonso has to pass Weber, And Weber basically puts, tries to put him on the grass down the start, finish straight with three or four laps to go. And Hughes's point is most drivers would probably have backed out at this point. Alonso just used the grass, just drove onto the grass and went past him. So he was just in absolute full-on fight mode, championship clinched, I'm just going for it. Um, so I think Alonso... Peak Alonso. Peak Alonso, yeah. Absolutely as strong a driver as Raikkonen. They both both mega that day. Yeah, and, and that's why the 05 Japanese Grand Prix stands as one of the, one of the great races, because not only was it just a massively storied race, there were some, some great performances. Now, next up on your list, which is what, number three, is a choice I'm very pleased is in there. Because, oh, I, because I think it's one that's very easy to forget. 2006 Hungarian Grand Prix, um, which is it's painful to put in because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jensen Button and this was his first Grand Prix win, oh, but of course, he shouldn't yes. have won it. Yeah. So, wet race, you had to be on Michelin's. Most of the front runners were, apart from Schumacher, who somehow managed to get the fly up to fourth early on on the Bridgestones, quite remarkable in itself. Um, and Alonso's first lap was amazing. He comes through four or five spots ahead of Jensen. He's you know, well down on the grid. Uh, from 15th, he was on the, on the grid. He had a grid penalty, he did he? He did, yeah. I think he had a penalty. I think Jensen might have had a penalty as well. I think they might both have had penalties. Or Schumacher. I think all three of them might have had penalties. I should yeah, remember, I really, shouldn't I? I, 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 I? You did do the list. Honestly, I did, yeah. I think all three of them had various forms of penalties that, yeah. that compromised so all three were all three were coming through, but Alonso was coming through very quickly, drove around the outside of Schumacher. Um, again? Again, yeah. Uh, Schumacher must have been getting really furious by that it, point. Yeah. He's like, yeah. oh, this guy. Um, so he gets up to, got, got up to third uh, behind the two McLarens, uh, Kimi Raikkonen and Pedro de la Rosa, if you remember when he was uh, driving the McLaren. 
Is this um, when Mon- Montoya was um, elbowed out for falling off bikes or tennis injuries? I, I think Montoya wasn't. He was less elbowed out. He more uh, walked away <laughs> at that point. But that was the season. Where, uh, no, it was the previous season. He did missed a couple of races. Oh, wasn't I see. Yeah, yeah Delarosa did the same. They were in a post Montoya vacuum. A post Montoya era. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a big debate that season about whether McLaren should continue with De La Rosa the next season or run Hamilton. Yeah, It's an amazing thing. That was a debate now. De La Rosa, it does, very it? good driver, but of course, yeah. not Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> um, so they both pit. Alonso stays out and for a time he's two seconds of that quicker than the chasing pack. So by the time he comes to his pit stop, I think, well, no, he doesn't get there actually. I think even, I can't remember if it's before or after his pit stop, Raikkonen crashes into Liuzzi while lapping him. And so basically, although Alonso loses his his cushion because of the safety car, he gets the free stop. Really, the only person that can match him is Button. So Button chases off after him after the safety car catches him up, the two of them together. And then, but Button has to come in because of his fuel load, has to come in and change before it's time to go on to slick. So he comes in, leaves the intermediates on, comes out, knowing that he's basically going to be second. Alonso can leave it late enough, comes in, goes straight on to slicks, happy days, big lead and the right tyres. He's going to win. And then the wheel falls off. Uh, off he goes, yeah. and no points. So it's probably his best wet weather performance, I think. You know, there are a few. I mean, even the end of that European Grand Prix we just mentioned was a, you know, the wet weather skill was there, but that one really was outstanding. It's a less heralded aspect of Alonso's craft. Yeah, actually. He's not really generally talked about as a rain master, but clearly, you know, a driver of his quality can do it. And interestingly, that race sounds a bit similar in some respects to the Malaysia 2012 one because there's this emotional story of unexpected achievement by somebody else it overshadows gets, gets, your gets memory of, yeah. of the, uh, yeah. the performance of Alonso he was quite good at slipping in stealth very good good drives I mean for example when uh, when Fisichella was his teammate and won in Australia because there was, there was rain in qualifying that helped Fisichella and Alonso was down the grid and Fisichella won and it was this I think because Fisichella had his chance in a, a top car yeah, it's great. but actually yeah. Alonso who'd started well down the order had turned in a, a drive uh, in the for net, the ages uh, well no, no, no not so, I, I like saying for the ages but you know his his <laughs> drive the list, his so drive was a cut above what Fisichella did in terms of pace etc and mm. if he'd started near Fisichella there's no chance Fizzy would have won so it's just uh, it, it's kind of the story of Alonso's career there's, a, there's some great there's always something else going on isn't there but there's often these <laughs> these great stealth drives that just if you just look at his results you wouldn't think that was anything special. Well, that's one of the reasons why the list was, you know, so tricky actually, because I had to check. It's not just a case of looking at the wins or even the podiums. What's number two then? Two thousand five San Marino Grand Prix. That one oh, is well remembered. Is that, well remembered. that is the landmark race, isn't that, it? Yeah, which is, and this is where the emo- I've let the emotion creep in a little Have bit. You? At the top end of the list, yeah. Just how very on Kevin Turner. I know, I know. Um, yeah, it's a coming <laughs> did, did of age. Did you catch sight of a Porsche nine one seven, and that made you a bit teary eyed? <laughs> oh, Fernando Alonso in a nine one seven. Right, anyway. No, don't think of that. Like, let's let's not you'll go lose down control. There. Yeah, absolutely. So this was this was the one tire year, um, and Bristol didn't get it right with Ferrari. Um, so they were off, often qualifying far back and uh, but then having amazing race pace. And in this one, Schumacher was able to lap over a second a lap quicker than anyone else and charged from 10th uh, to 3rd, overtook Jensen Button for 2nd and then charged off after Alonso. And with 11 or 12 laps to go, they were together and he had at least, as I say, a second lap advantage. And given how well he breezed past everyone else, um, I think, also, Alonso was still on the engine that he'd used to win in Bahrain, the previous race. So he even had it turned down. 
but he just didn't make a mistake. Schumacher even said the only problem I had was that he just didn't make any mistake anywhere. You know, he, he was he slowed him down where he needed to use the traction of the Renault where, where in the right places. If you watch the if you watch the replay, obviously you'll have to watch the replay not from ITV because this is the race famously where they went for a break with about three or four minutes to go, um, and lots of people wrote in and missed very very cross they missed it. Um, he just Michael actually gets the nose down the inside into Tosa once or twice. You know, it's proper. It's not a oh, we can get within a second and he's in the dirty air. He, was and he all just over sits him. there. Yeah. Um, so I have had a bit of social media feedback on this to say oh, it's overrated because San Marino is it's hard to overtake, which is fair. But I think given the context of who it is and the pace advantage they've got, and the fact that this is kind of this is Alonso era chapter one. Well, the, the pace advantage I think there. is the key point there because. I mean, Hamilton's been saying recently that that's that's the the threshold, isn't it? You need really a second a lap over a, another driver to make a pass in very aero dependent cars. No, so most, fa- most teams would say the number's actually higher. Maybe but it's I, higher, I, don't think, yeah. I don't think it counts when you're Lewis Hamilton. No, and that's now when there's even more aero than there was then. So if if Schumacher's got a second a lap on everyone, including Alonso, even on a slightly tricky but not impossible to overtake on circuit. He probably should get the job but, done. But this is and the sort so of thing. So it's a great defensive drive, isn't it? It's the yeah, sort of which thing is that, an unusual part of his game. We yes. don't talk about it's, the thing is that kind of drive is people. They, everyone wants to, wants to see sensational passes, etc. But that discipline of not putting a foot wrong under intense pressure from an all-time great, you know that so difficult. That, that's incredibly difficult, and many many drivers would, would fold under it. We said we said that had roles been reversed in that Nürburgring race in 2007 when Massa got passed, then Alonso probably wouldn't have been. Well, so, so that tells you, you know, drivers do. They crack, do, don't they? Do and crack and Schumacher, in fact, that was one of the criticisms often levelled at him, wasn't it? That in the rare occasions where he was put under pressure, he folded a bit. Was yeah, on occasion, although, of course, he did return the favour at Samuel the year, which is quite a nice little... Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was everything that Fisichella wasn't at Suzuka. Yeah, he wasn't defending phantoms into breaking areas. He was he knew where... Uh, I guess you also... Got to watch out for those you, phantoms. Yeah, you also <laughs> trust the guy behind that you kind of... Yeah, it's just it's just judgment not cracking under pressure. It's just two very high-class drivers and going, exactly. going and it, I mean, it did, it did... You know, going back to the emotional side that you let creep in, it did mark that sort of passing of the guard, didn't it? It was the moment at which you could see... Symbolic again. Yeah, yeah. This, this... Finally, this run being broken. Yeah, I mean, it, it, definitely a, a special race and... Uh, yeah, not easy when there's that, that pace advantage. So what's number one, Kev? So a big reveal. I think Fernando would probably agree with this because I've let the emotion in here a bit again. The 2012 European Grand Prix. This is the Valencia street fight. Um, so Wow. He, is, he rates that as his best race, he, he? he? He's one of the ones he mentions a lot when he's looking back. I think partly because it's in front of his home crowd. But it's also, it's just classic Alonso. It's a swashbuckling, street fighting. Clearly the car wasn't the From down the grid. Qualified in 11th. This puts him into the having won a Grand Prix from outside the top 10 class, which is a very small <laughs> it, class. It's a tiny it's, number. I think there were 23 or 24 races. Something like that. And we, yeah, out of almost 1,000 races. Yeah. So, um, wow. you know, it, lots of overtaking. He did have a bit of luck. Um, some of the cars in the mid-pack had slow stops, so he was able to jump them. But he did overtake a lot of cars. Got up to third before a safety car period. And impossible and just, to overtake on that circuit, yeah, people said as well. Oh, his first lap was incredible. We went past Button and a couple of others. Just It just has it ticks all the Alonso button, uh, boxes, really. Does Grosjean, who I think you'd probably argue the Lotus was at least as good, if not better, than the Ferrari, but he just does him on the restart around the outside. That was a good car that year, the Lotus, yeah, it wasn't was. it? Yeah, you know, and, and, and Raikkonen probably should have won in Bahrain, I think, that year. 
Yeah. He was a bit rusty, wasn't he? Yeah, Spain it, as well was one where the Lotus yeah, was very it was good. good. Car. It, now, poetic, just, well, if it was to sum up Alonso's career, really he should finish second behind Vettel's Red Bull. <laughs> but actually, the, the Red Bull breaks on the same lap as Gro- he goes past Grosjean. He then has to fight off a resurgent Grosjean, but he shouldn't be ahead of him in the first place. Grosjean then has the same alternator problem as the Red Bull. And then he, and he wins. I think he runs out of fuel or has to stop on the slowdown lap because he's got low fuel, so you need the sample. And then so he just celebrates with the home fans for a few minutes before he gets picked up by the... So it's just... It's An just, emotional it's number one emotional, Kevin Turner. Emotional, you know, it's just... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean a hideously ugly car. Quintessential Alonso. It, it was a brilliant yeah, victory. Yeah, I, so. I mean, that, that to me is taking a tricky car, getting the best out of it, being given, being presented an opportunity with Vettel hitting trouble. You were at that race, yeah. weren't you? Uh, not Valencia 2012, I no. should have been, but there was uh, that day I, I was... That was uh, one of your races off, was it? Yeah, I was unable to walk at that particular, oh, okay. <laughs> particular moment. That's a shame, I thought we were um, going to have so personal yeah, missed, testimony. Yeah. Like no, you were no, standing I, at turn one as he came... I was in the, the crowd as he celebrated. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> sidelined for uh, for that in Canada, I think it was, in, a, in that year, but uh, for, for legitimate reasons. But uh, yeah, but it ticks all... The box is, is that lesser car given a sniff of victory, some great overtaking at a place, just absolutely forcing the issue. And the other reason I wanted to put it in is I really wanted to have a 2012 one at number one because I think the 2012, Alonso's 2012 campaign is one of the all-time great championship campaigns. I think there was Suzuka, I think he made a mistake at the start. And I think that's pretty much the only points he gave away as a driver. People underestimate how tricky that Ferrari was at times. It wasn't a great car, but he just seized opportunities whenever that, whenever they happened. He just maximised it, and and so many random variables, weren't there, with yeah. the Pirelli tyres that yeah. nobody could work out. So to have a driver like that who's able to improvise better than no exactly. other, that that allows him to elevate a car that should never have been in championship contention right into the heart it, of the matter. It, it would have been up there with Prost eighty six, Stewart seventy three as a kind of a great driver winning the drivers' championship rather than. a the driver car so close the thing that really stands out in that list is you've got a bunch of races there so many different types so many different things winning under pressure coming from behind winning in the best car winning in definitely not the best car that's the legacy tracks you know it's not you know remember we we talked about on a recent podcast looking back someone like ronnie peterson i remember we talked about how there were certain tracks where he was incredible on but you don't see any of that with alonso you just see just consistent excellence that's why it must have been such a hard job to do this list kev because I mean, I didn't have to undertake this task, but thinking about it, it's so hard to pick because so many of his races are so good. Yeah, he's, he's always at such a high level. There aren't these kind of massive peaks that stand out where you can obviously say, "Oh yeah, this, 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 and this," because the others fall below that standard. Even some, re- you know, even some of the great drivers have kind of obvious choices, and it's very hard to sustain that level. Whereas Alonso just has been so relentlessly good throughout his career. Yeah, an example of that is the the top ten ratings again. There are, I think, there are only three drivers that have got more than about a dozen. Most people have got single figure ten out of tens, as you'd imagine. Mm. Lewis has got thirty. Well, contrary to popular opinion, it's difficult to get a ten yeah. out of ten. Yeah, Hamilton's got thirty nine in the last ten years. Vettel's got thirty one. Alonso's got twenty four. And normally, you get more points if you're in the front of the grid, in the sense of you're in, you know, championship fight. Blah blah blah. Um, so that's that's yeah, that's twenty four. 10 out of 10s and a lot of them aren't wins um, and it gives you an idea of just yeah, how many there were to go through I mean I I, I did have a long longer short list than normal and that's saying something because they're usually pretty pretty mm. long <laughs> uh, are there any races that come to your your mind I mean you've you've both been at so many of Alonso's races um, there are there are so many I mean even with Minardi 
in 2001, Japanese Grand Prix, excelled there. Is it Indianapolis qualifier? You know, just turning in really outstanding performances that that nobody nobody noticed. You know, there's so many of them, and there's races where he's been where he was chasing in a car that wasn't as quick, but he kept the car closer to the front than he than he should have done. Suzuka 2010, I guess, is one one example of that when Red Bull had dominant with Vatlan Weber but he just sort of hung on there 2014 Hungarian Grand Prix he came pretty close to winning Ricardo got in near near the end but the fact that I mean you could argue that could Alonso have done anything to keep him behind for that last couple of laps maybe but you know there was a there was a performance advantage for for Ricardo yeah so what what he was was a driver there's lots of these races there's a few races there where he's finished first where he shouldn't have done there's other races where he's finished third when he should have finished fifth or finished well, fifth when he should have finished 10th 2017 you know, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix was like that uh the last race of his that I rated and I think I gave him a 10 out of 10 he, he beat Felipe Massa's Williams to eighth or ninth or someone lower points paying position but again an example of uh a race a battle that he won that he shouldn't have done really like that Williams was better than the McLaren Honda on that kind of track. It's a very engine sensitive track. Massa had much more power, but Alonso managed to find a way to to beat him. Um, that's 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 the thing about Alonso, isn't it? So many races where he finds a way to achieve something that, of course, it's possible, but so unlikely in the circumstances. It's just what it just reflects what he is. He's a driver who consistently managed to get the best out. And one, of, I think, one of the good things about the fact he spent an unusually large amount of time in poor cars and it has been frustrating at times but you have seen some some great performances in very unpromising situations uh in the midfield and we saw that in 2018 as well it's just what he's he's capable of doing and when when he's on song he's able to just just drag a performance out of the car and that that will actually stand a bit more that will stand him in good stead in terms of we talk about legacy etc for example Let's take another two times champion who had a very long post championship career, Emerson Fittipaldi. Now, he had a few good races when he was driving for the Fittipaldi team, but there were a lot of races where he sort of felt he wasn't really pushing too hard. It wasn't very promising. The car wasn't very good. Whereas Felt Alonso more often was able to pull these performances out in, uh, in more limited machinery. And so probably you'd say, actually, you know, that, that, that's a, a great positive that he could do that for so long. Absolutely. And that's why I'm looking forward to seeing him in other other cars even if we don't see him back in in formula actually here's one one final question to both of you then so what would you like to see him in if he because he, he hasn't announced his full 2019 program yet has he i don't think i'd like to see him in anything frankly well yeah by i've got a couple by, of by very kevin turner suggestions well, we, we, we've seen well, 917 historics well no historics yeah so i think a group <laughs> c car at silverson classic and in the tt at the good revival yeah i mean what, it was, i remember watching uh him he demoed a 51 Ferrari, I think it's a yeah. British Grand Prix winner at Silverstone. And I think he may have driven it in Bahrain one year as well. And you could see he was, he was sliding the car around really spectacularly. You know, sometimes you see drivers getting cars of that vintage and they sort of poodle around. But he was he was loving it and just spectacular. It was brilliant to see. So I think in a car like that, cars like that, he'd, he'd, he'd be great to see him in, in competition. I, th- I think he'd be great in anything, but honestly, I'd, I'd prefer to see him make an unexpected, heroic mid-season comeback in Formula One. It, it can, it can always. I mean, we talked about this on the the podcast uh, about Alonso in the NASCAR and uh, Albon getting the Toro seat a few weeks ago. So I won't go into it too much. But my point there was that he's still a very, very good driver. You never know what will happen in the driver market, and if one of those top teams needs a mega driver and they haven't got a Verstappen or a Hamilton 
or Vettel or whatever on their books, then they might think, actually, do you know what? We'll get we'll give Fernando Alonso a call because even a forty-year-old Fernando Alonso, as long as he's still Ray Sharp, is going to be formidable. Absolutely, I agree. So I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't necessarily say the F one book is completely closed. They very very he, very the, specifically left the door open. Yeah, he hasn't closed. Has he? You know, some people got carried away at the time in the summer saying, "Oh, he's retiring from Formula One." No, it's, he. They did very deliberately did not use that. Said he he's, will he's not doing a very Nigel Mansell. I'm not retiring. I'm still racing. I'm still available. I mean, obviously Jensen Button said I'm not retiring, and of course he hasn't. But the Formula One door probably has closed there. But with Alonso, like Ed says, I think it's there's very much the chance for him to come back if the circumstances are right because he left of his own accord. Now, if he wanted to, he'd still be on the grid this year. The only thing that might work against him is is that is that the modern equivalent of saying I'm going to leave McLaren because I'm sure I'll find a way into a competitive car. Because there's going to be, there are only going to be more good drivers coming in. You know, yeah, we've but got I, Ocon, I, Ocon already on the sideline. I, I think Russell. when it, I think when it comes to um, but Alonso's McLaren, there's, the, there's no. I think he yeah, just felt there was no point carrying on. If, yeah, if, if he thought there was it, any chance of McLaren so, winning in 2019, he'd have he'd have stayed. But of course, there's there's no chance of that. Chance are it's going to be faffing around in the midfield again. Sometimes you <laughs> sometimes you just need a break, don't you, as well to to clear your head and maybe even come back stronger you know? and, and I think there will exactly. be you know if you put yourself in the position of a team boss let's just say Mercedes Lewis Hamilton wins another world championship next year and then does a Nico Rosberg oh I've had enough I'm going to retire with six world championships and then Toto will think oh what do I do and you think well I've got let, let's say you've the, the, they're keeping Bottas in the car anyway just for the sake of argument they say alright we put Ocon in fine but then you think oh, hang on a minute we've got one guy who we've never seen in a front-running car, and one guy who hasn't been able to have a championship-winning run. Would leave you and run. Ferrari are really strong. Do you know what? We need, a pr- we need to prove them. And you're right yeah. that, you know, Leclerc should join that elite group of drivers, and there's others who could. Pierre Gasly's got the chance to be Unknowns, Red Bull. though, aren't they? But the fact that people know Alonso can do a job means they... I mean, McLaren would never... You'd never have imagined McLaren could ever possibly go back to Fernando Alonso a few years ago. True. After what happened in 07, but they did because it was a, it was a marriage. It became a, a marriage of convenience. Alonso needed somewhere a project he could be optimistic about, and McLaren needed needed a driver like that. So, think, think and we've seen drivers coming change. back, haven't we? Felipe Massa, he was done, and then oh no, we need a driver back. Yeah. You come, Felipe. Never, when you got someone of that quality, and if, you never know. You certainly would give him a call, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, go on then, chaps. Make it happen. Well, we'll uh, we'll get we'll, <laughs> we'll see if we can find uh, a few billion in the. Uh, well, that means that it's to be even harder, be even more throughout. Once oh, Ed Straw found his own F one team, oh, we'll have loads more data to go through. That'll be the good thing, rather than uh, we have to go on. But well, anyway, we've we've talked far too long about Fernando Alonso, but we could talk about him many more hours. I think he's a a driver who you know is still too close to his career to really make it a f- definitive reflection there's still maybe more f1 races to come and certainly it's gonna be great to see how he gets on the indy 500 in, in 2019 and continue sports car outings and, and but he is knows, a driver for the ages though isn't oh 100 percent a driver for the ages no question and from my perspective i had the privilege to see him in action in formula one an enormous amount and you can see what makes him such an incredible driver he's a he's a likable he is a likable character he's an intelligent yes. guy he's it's very interesting to interview oh massively so and he you know, ask him ask him an interesting question. You'll get you'll get an interesting answer. And for all I found some of the bombast a little bit frustrating. That's just him playing the game. Yeah, well, like like you said some hours ago when he was talking about um, what he's like. What, well, what you know, like, yeah. he always said that the uh, you know the, the snapshot that the public gets is you know a few seconds or minutes grabbed here and there on TV when drivers have just come back from the most stressful situations. Their hearts are racing. 
all this, that and the other. And it's it's a circus as well, isn't it? It's a show. So you can easily misrepresent yourself or be misrepresented as a person in that environment and also perhaps feel the need to play a role. He said that, you know, sometimes you have to be a certain character to in order to advance, you know, what the show is about. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're like that, you know, 100% of the rest of the time. Um, you know, he, he's just non-conformist, isn't he, really? He stands apart a little bit in some of his attitudes. You know, he still lives in Spain, pays his taxes, doesn't live in a tax haven like most Formula One drivers fleeing off to Monaco as soon as they can, involved in charity work, all these kind of hidden sides that you, you just wouldn't see if you were and, following and even, Formula um, One casually. Even putting a bit more back into motorsport, he's got his cart. So, like, yeah, it's yeah a business, absolutely. But yeah. He's genuinely interested in, in young drivers, et cetera. And often, so he, he's somebody who. For, for, a, for someone who it's all about, supposed to be about me, 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 he doesn't behave like that away from the race circuit necessarily. So, no, no, there's no, multi layered character. I think, uh, yeah, I think over time people maybe see a little bit more. Of that, I mean, go down the line when eventually he's retired from from racing. If he's hanging around motorsport, I think people get a bit of a better feel for feel for him. You know, he's not yeah. um, he's not maybe always made the right decisions. I think that's I think you know you can only make the best decisions you can at any given time based on the information you've got. So you can't necessarily say they were the wrong decisions, but you can say, but with with the benefit of hindsight, well, maybe because that we know we, we praise people for making the right decisions. But things like management sports, come so. into that as well, don't they? It's no, not exactly, only exactly, him. Yeah. There's other people involved in yeah, that yeah, behind yeah, the fair, scenes. Fair, so. Very much so. But whatever happens, you know, two world championship is, is pretty remarkable. He's one of only 33 people to have won the world championship ever. So undoubtedly an, an all time great. And particularly, I think he's reasonably well appreciated, but for those who want to see him purely as the villain, I think it's important to take a step back and just see what he brings because he's a guy who does what we all want to see all racing drivers do. Well, he rings the neck of the car, gets the best out of it, and he's a, he's he's a winner of great and, races. And if you were putting a team together, he he'd be high on your shortlist, wouldn't he? If, he if would, you were doing yeah. fantasy Formula One or fantasy motorsport, and like Kev, you often like to ask the question: or which driver would you choose throughout history to race for your life? And Alonso would be in the conversation, wouldn't he? He would, yeah. Well, he's what Sterling Moss would call a racer. He's not just a driver. He is a racer, isn't he? And yeah, we all we all like we all like those. No, certainly a racer. And I think that's a, a very good way to, to leave this uh, lengthy podcast. Thank you very much, Kevin Turner and Ben Anderson. Well, I'd suggest please everyone go to autosport.com for all the latest on F1 and the whole world of motorsport. Check out our Plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists on all sorts of topics. Check out Sister Titles, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly, motorsport.com and Motorsport News, out every Wednesday. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You've always had what it takes to make it happen, and we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program, so you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Shiloh. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.